If you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, then put your finger in your Bible there and then flip on over to chapter 14. These are familiar verses, but I believe we're going to learn from them again once again today. As we begin, I want to remind you of the words of Jesus to his disciples. The prerequisite for being his disciple have not changed over the centuries. And the words that he spoke to them are just as relevant and as applicable today as they were 2,000 years ago when Jesus breathed them through his human body. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus said to all of his disciples, he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Do you see that principle that Jesus teaches there? That if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it, but if you're willing to lose your life, you'll be able to save it. Then in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus makes this very strong statement. He says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. There is no discipleship without a cross. From these and many other scriptures, we understand that a requirement for being a disciple of Jesus is taking up your cross. But what does that mean? Like we hear people say, take up your cross. We have this idea of Jesus carrying a wooden beam on his back. And so to relate that to our everyday life, it's hard for me to understand. Okay, I'm supposed to take up my cross. Yeah, pastor, I'm taking up my cross. But how is that applicable to our lives today? May I suggest to you that we'll learn what it means to take up our cross when we look at what Jesus did whenever he took up his cross. So we're going to learn what we're to do by looking at his example. The first thing I want to remind you of is this, that taking up the cross, and you might want to jot this down, means no more rights. Taking up your cross means no more rights. Taking up your cross means laying down the claim to your life, to your will, to your plans, to your future, to your dreams, to your goals, and in submission and in obedience to the will of the Father. If you'll turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 shows us what Jesus did. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 says this. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who would save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
Now, while this portion of Scripture refers to the totality of Jesus' life, it has a special emphasis when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's probably the very best illustration of where we see Jesus doing this. I want to read that to you one more time. I know that you can read it, but I want to read that one more time to you. It says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears. During Jesus' time here on earth, there were periods of times that for him to do the will of the Father required agonizing in prayer. You see, because the Bible teaches us this, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he became flesh, that he became a man, and that he was tempted in all points as you and I are, yet he was without sin. Some of us think that it wasn't any trial for him at all to live a sinless life. Now, we believe completely that Jesus lived a sinless life. But if he was tempted in every point as you and I are, then there had to be periods of agonizing in prayer. And that's what Jesus did. He says that he agonized in prayer. And he prayed to the one who could save him from death. Now, we talked about this recently on Wednesday night. You did miss a good teaching because we talked about death and how there's death. Death is not just when your brain waves. There's another dimension of death. Death is not just when your brain waves quit functioning. Death is not just when you quit breathing or when your heart stops beating. Jesus refers to in Scripture, whenever he raised people from the dead, he would often say that they're asleep. Jesus tasted of death. There's another dimension of death that's a complete separation from God. You know, the scripture says in the last days that death and Hades are going to be cast into outer, there's going to be people going to be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's another dimension that Jesus tasted of so that you and I would never have to taste of death. But as we go on, and it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. He learned obedience. Now, there's another place, if we look at Mark 14, Mark 14, it tells about Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus, as he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 32, Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass for him. Abba Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The scripture records that Jesus goes to the disciples, and what does he find them doing? Asleep. Jesus has said to him, guys, I desperately need you today. Would you watch with me and pray? Just, just wait here, pray with me. And he goes over, and he's agonizing. He is an incredible agonizing. If there was ever a time, he's saying to him, if there's ever a time I needed you to pray, I need you to pray for me now. If there's ever a time I need you to stand with me, I need you to stand with me now. 
If there's ever a time I need you to to intercede and touch the Father's heart, it's now. I need you now. And he walks away and he's pouring out his heart to God and he comes back and here's his guys. They're all snoring away. He tells them, don't just pray for me, but pray for yourselves. He comes back and he prays the same thing. Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. I don't want to do it. You see, if Jesus was tempted in every point as you and I are, there was a part of him that did not want to experience this separation from the Father. There was a part of him that didn't want to experience this pain, this rejection of God. You see, because what he tasted was not just a physical death. It wasn't just a beating. And we focused upon that so often. You and I focus upon the fact that Jesus was beaten. I want you to know this. There's been many people who've been beaten beyond recognition. There's been many. There's been many people who've been crucified. Thousands of people have been crucified. People have been burned at the stake. What makes Jesus different from them? Because he was the perfect spotless lamb. He did not just endure the pain, the physical pain and the physical suffering on the cross, the Bible says he tasted death for us so that we don't have to die. Well, wait a minute. I've buried a lot of very godly people. I've buried some saints. I know they love God. The word says that they don't have to taste death. What it's speaking of is this second death, this eternal separation from God that Jesus tasted for us. Here's our second point. Taking up your cross means learning obedience, and submission. Taking up your cross, when you hear the scripture commanded, if you want to be his disciple, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. You can't be my disciple. It's a prerequisite. If you don't pick up your cross and follow me, if you don't learn obedience and submission, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We got a lot of people who want to be excused of the prerequisites that are required. Well, is there a way that I can get by this? Absolutely not. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, it requires obedience, learning obedience and submission. Would you like to learn how to be obedient? Okay, let me change this. Would you like to be able to teach your kids how to be obedient? The reason why we don't like to learn obedience ourselves is because when we look at Jesus' example, and when we look at the scripture that we just read, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Wait a minute. The perfect son of God learned obedience from what he suffered. The scripture tells us, That Jesus allowed his suffering to keep moving him forward on the pathway to conformity to the will of God. He allowed the things that he suffered to produce something in him. And it was obedience. He let obedience be the direct result and the byproduct of all of his suffering. What does suffering produce in your life? What do you allow suffering to produce in your life? Hmm. Can I just throw out a few things? Confusion, disillusionment, resentment, anger, disappointment. 
See, for many Christians, what they allow is they allow suffering to produce all of these negative things in their lives. That when they suffer, they become confused. When they suffer, they become disillusioned. When they suffer, they begin to be filled with doubt. When they suffer, it begins to produce things like resentment in their lives and anger towards God. But Jesus, as the scripture said earlier, his reverent submission, he allows suffering to produce the byproduct of his suffering was obedience. And if you allow the Holy Spirit, I want you to hear this today very clearly. If you allow the Holy Spirit today, he will cause the byproduct of your suffering to produce obedience and righteousness within your life. Henry Blackby writes in his book, Experiencing God. What was the direct result of that obedience? And he says, the passage in Hebrews goes on to tell us, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus, in his obedient manhood, was made perfect. He was made complete in everything God required in the Savior. As a result, he became the perfect provision God was looking for. The spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by his sacrificial death. And I want to go back and backtrack a little bit. When it speaks about Jesus, it says that although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, or once complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You know, I wonder what happens. I wonder what takes place whenever you and I are suffering. And during that times of suffering, we petition God with prayers and with cries, and with tears. God, just like Jesus, it says that God heard him. He was heard because of his reverent submission. He learned obedience through what he suffered. I want you to see this. God hears us, and his heart turns towards men and women, young people, who submit themselves to God's will, and yield themselves to him. And once made perfect, it says, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. God begins to use people in supernatural ways. That's what happened with Jesus. What happens with us when we learn submission to the Father's will? What happens to us? What happens in our lives and through our lives when we are made complete, perfect? You say, well, pastor, none of us are perfect. What it's talking about is maturity, when we're complete, when we're whole, when our hearts and our minds are not divided, we too become vessels that God flows through. We too, when you and I allow God to work in our lives, when we submit ourselves, our will to His will, when we reverently fear Him, when we allow that trials and tests to produce obedience in us, which in turn also maturity and wholeness and completeness is produced in our lives, then we become vessels that God's salvation flows through. We don't save anybody, but people see us. What do they see? They they see the reflection of our Savior. They see the transformation in our lives. Let me remind you again that the cross means no personal rights. 
The cross means no personal rights. Why do you say that, Pastor? Because that's what Jesus' cross meant. It meant I give up my rights. I can call 10,000 angels, can call legions of angels. I can say stop it at any time. And he gave up his rights. Although he was God, he gave up his rights so that he could come to redeem mankind. Paul told to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He said, your attitude, everybody say attitude. Your attitude is going to affect your altitude. Huh? Your attitude is going to affect so much in your life. It's going to affect where you go, what you accomplish. And he said, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And we're all in agreement with that. Yes, yes, yes. That sounds really good, Pastor. But he says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, not of a master, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I want you to see what happens because he did that. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Okay? He exalted him. He gave him a name that's above every name. He put him in a place high above everything else. All that he did for him was to the glory of God the Father. One of the greatest hindrances for Christians is the way that we try to hold on to our rights and the things that we deserve. Taking up the cross means no more rights. I don't think I like this, taking up the cross. Now you can see why so many of Jesus' disciples, followers, left him. When he started preaching about the cross and teaching about the cross, as long as he's doing the fish sandwiches, I mean, they're in like Flynn. I mean, they're in. As long as you're doing the free fish sandwich day, they're like, yes. But when he starts taking up this cross and giving up your rights, just as Jesus agonized in the garden, many of you have your own private Gethsemane. When you struggle with what God is asking for you. Just wait there a minute. Jesus is not the only one who experienced the Garden of Gethsemane. Every one of his followers are going to have their own Garden of Gethsemane. They're going to have their own place of agony where they battle through and where they decide, where they make the decision, am I going to take up my cross or am I going to say that what you're asking of me is too much? I'll give you this much, but I can't give you all of my rights. Perhaps this is best illustrated in the account of Abraham and Isaac. Genesis chapter 22. You guys all know the account of Abraham. Abraham's father was a pagan. He worshipped other gods. Abraham has an encounter. He believes upon that there's one true God. And God spoke to him and called him. And Abraham leaves his family. He leaves his homeland. And he sets out on a journey to follow God. Those encounters with God, God spoke to him and gave him All kinds of promises. And while God blessed Abraham and prospered him, 
there were certain things that God held back from him. I mean, Abraham had all kinds of blessings around him. But there were certain things that were really, really valuable to him. They were really important to him that it seemed that God held back. God made Abraham promises that his children were going to be as numerous as the sand on the sea. God made Abraham promises that through him, all nations of the earth would be blessed. And then God was quiet. And he didn't answer. And he didn't provide. And so after all of these years, Abraham still trusts God. And 90 some years old, he and Sarah have a child. And it was like, God, we've waited so long. We believed you. We trusted you. And during that journey, remember, Abraham tried to handle some of those things in the flesh. And he produced a child with his handmaiden, Hagar. But he knew that wasn't what God had said. Well, God speaks to Abraham. Here he has Isaac, he and Sarah. And God speaks to him. In chapter 22, the scripture says that God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son. I want you to see the parallel here. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, Isaac. Let me go back. Your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you. Well, Abraham takes his son. He begins the journey. After three days, he looks up and God speaks to him. And God says, that's the place. That's where I want you to do it. And so Abraham leaves his servants. And in verse 6, I want you to see this parallel. In verse 6, it says that Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Do you see any parallels? He said, Abraham took the wood and he placed it upon his son Isaac. Just like thousands of years later, the father would place the cross upon the back of Jesus. The Romans didn't crucify him. It was within the will of God. God placed that cross before him. And he himself, Abraham, carried the fire and the knife as the two of them went on together. So Abraham's with his son. And as he's walking, he takes Isaac and they start walking up the hill. And as they get up onto the hill... They get on top of the mountain and they begin to build an altar. And imagine they picked up stones and move all these stones around and set stones here. And then Abraham gets the wood. He takes the wood and he places it just in the right place and he arranges it. And then he takes Isaac. And he binds Isaac up. Now the scripture doesn't tell us that Isaac ran or that he tried to get away. But Abraham takes his son, he binds him up, and he lays him on the altar. I want you to think about what's going through Abraham's mind as he does this. God. Maybe 120 years old. We don't know the exact age. Maybe 115, 118 years old. 
His son, by this time, was becoming a young man. And he's saying, God, I love this boy. I love this boy. Walking up the altar with the knife in his coat. And his son says to him, Dad, we got the wood. We got the fire. Where's the lamb? Now, I think some people think like Abraham was like, the Lord shall provide a lamb. I don't think that's what he was thinking. I think there was probably tears running down his face. This was not an easy thing. This was agony. I think with tears running down his face, he said, Isaac, Yahweh, Jehovah, he will provide. He will provide. And so he takes his son, he builds the altar. I imagine he's thinking, God, how are we going to do this? I want you to understand this. This goes so much further than just killing his son. That would be an incredible sacrifice. That would be an incredible price to pay. It goes further than that. As he binds him up and as he lays him on that altar. And the scripture doesn't say that Isaac fought. And as he pulls the knife out of his robe, and he raises it over his head, every one of his dreams laid right there. It wasn't just his son. It was every promise of God that God had ever spoken to him laid right there in that boy. Because his son, you see, his future laid right there. The promise of God's blessing laid there. The promise of God's favor, all of this future. See, if he died without a son, when his son died, every one of the promises of God died too. Do you see that? Because God says, you're going to do great things for me. Through you, all nations of the earth are going to be blessed. You're going to impact the world. And right there, laying on that altar on a Mount Moriah, out in the middle of nowhere, laid every hope and dream that he had. I believe Abraham was probably crying as he pulls the knife out of his cloak and he raises it up over his head. Probably took a huge breath, ready to bring it right down into the heart of his son. And when his son died, listen, it wasn't just his son. It was every dream, every hope. All the things that life was about was right there. Everything that God had said, everything he had trusted for and worked for and waited for all of his life, and God finally gave it to him, and his son was going to be gone. Now, let's take a little break from this. I don't think he consulted with Sarah about this. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't think he consulted Sarah and said, Sarah, how you feel about this? You cool with this? He's going to have a lot of explaining to do. All of his dreams, all of his hopes, right there. Boom. Pulls the knife over his head. He's ready to slam it into his son's chest. And he's willing to give up everything he's worked for all of his life and lose it all. And all of a sudden, a voice from heaven yells, Abraham! 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 Stop! Don't do it! Don't do that. I want you to know what God said. If you look at the next verse, don't lay on the hand on the boy, he said, 
don't do anything to him. The key verse here is in verse 12. Now I know. Now I know that you fear God. God's saying to him, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Did you notice this? God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son. But he refused to stop the process of sacrificing his son, Jesus. Why is it important, that verse that we read, why is it important when God said, now I know? Because he could not truly be Abraham's Lord if anything else in his life was in first place. If Abraham would choose his son, he was not really his God. But his son was a gift. His son was the promise. His son held all of his future and all of these future blessings. He held all of it there. What he was saying is now... I know that you trust me completely and that nothing else is more important in your life. If we would keep reading on in that portion of Scripture, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and I have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies and through your offspring all nations of earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. (laughs) Taking up the cross, this is our final point. Taking up the cross produces perfection. By that I mean maturity for you. And glory for God. When you're willing to take up the cross, it produces perfection, completeness, wholeness, maturity for you, and glory goes to God as a result of that. Now, as we close, Jesus said this, that if you're going to take up your cross, if you're going to be his disciple, you can't do it without taking up your cross. It's impossible. Can't be one. Sometimes when we think taking up your cross and sacrificing things, some of us think of the bad stuff. Do you know what I mean? We think of, yeah. Hmm. What is the, I need to quit. And we have our, remember we have our list of things that I need to quit doing. I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do that. But I want you to know that sometimes taking up your cross is agonizing over surrendering good things to God. It's a surrendering of your rights. Sometimes it's a surrendering of the promises of God to you. Pastor, I thought God told me that he was going to use me this way. Pastor, I thought God said. 
Friend, if you're going to follow Jesus for any length of time, you're going to have your own personal Garden of Gethsemane. You're going to have that place where God calls you and he asks you to take up your cross, to give up your rights. It's one of those things of, I don't know if I can live without this. Can you imagine, Abraham? My wife's 100 years old. You ever notice that things you've waited for a long time, there's some things that are easy to give up, and there's other things that are really hard to surrender, like good things, things that you've waited for a very long time. For some of you, God may ask you to lay down your ministry. He may ask you to lay down your idea of success. He may ask you to lay down this thing that you say, I so desperately, God, it's what you promised to me. I can't even imagine going on life without this. This is the reason why I live, Lord. This is my purpose, and you're asking me to lay it down? Well, Jesus actually said, if you're going to be his disciple, that you have to. As we get ready to close, this is what we're going to do. There's problem for each of us here. Well, we talked about Abraham and his dreams. Probably for each of us, at some point or another, there's been this Garden of Gethsemane experience. I'm going to tell you my personal experience. The things I've been able to give to God, they may be insignificant to you, but to me, they were big at the time. Think of my wife and I, when, I think of like when I felt called to ministry. And I had this thing when I felt called to ministry and I thought about my future and saying of what I wanted to do and what my plans were and what my future was. And being able to say, I remember going outside at the house on a night and felt this call to ministry. I didn't know how I was going to pay for my school bill. I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I remember another guy I went to school with. His parents were getting all kinds of financial aid and I wouldn't get any financial aid hardly at all. I didn't know how I was going to do it or how I was going to pay for it. And I just remember going and saying, standing outside. I, I still remember today. I was standing outside of the kitchen door. We have, we have steps outside. And I went out there and me and mom were talking about it. And I shut the door and I stood out there. And I, and I just came to that place. I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to give you my life. It was a surrender point. Can I tell you what? I have the best life that there is. I'm blessed because I was able to surrender that part. My things are different than yours. So please understand me. And yours are different from the person next to you. I remember for Lori and I, after we'd worked for a good while, the, the thought of someday having a house. And I remember when we pastored, we were pastoring here, and we'd pastored in Baltimore. And I remember like dreaming of living in some places that I look at now. I dreamed of living in them. And I'm looking at them now, I'm like, well, that's not a very nice place. But I was like, man, I'd love to live there. You know what I mean? And I remember we went through periods of time. I think we were married about 11 years. And I remember wanting to buy a house and always tied and always gave. And I know my wife wanted a house because it's a sense of security. It's a nice thing. I remember praying about that. We'd give and we'd save our money. And it seemed like there was no way possible for it to happen. And truthfully, I remember there were times that we would talk about it and she'd cry. And and you feel like helpless and what's wrong with me? I can't take care of my family. You've probably been through those things. And whenever I came to a point, I said, God, if you don't ever give me a house, I'm going to serve you. I've served you till now. If you never give it to me, I'm going to serve you, God. When I look at what God's done in my life now, I mean, my home is beautiful. I don't say that in an arrogant way. I know where it's from. It's from God. I don't deserve as nice a house as I have. 
But when I died to that, when I was able to say, I give it up, God. And sometimes it takes us years to give stuff up. I'm going to say this to you. Everything you hold on to, do you remember the children of Israel whenever they tried to hold on to the manna? They tried to hold on to it for another day. They'd hold on to it. What was it? It got wormy and rotten and putrid. But I'm going to explain this to you. In your life, the places that you're holding on to things that God is asking from you, I promise you what you'll find, you'll find worms, you'll find rottenness, you'll find putrid stuff there. Whatever part of your life, it's just that way. I can't explain it. I can because the Bible says that if you'll try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you'll lose your life for his sake, you'll find it. Huh. What a contradiction. What a contradiction. And along the way, there's been all kinds of other places in our lives that we try to hold on to. And God says, I want that. Surrender it to me today. Some of your goals and some of your dreams and some of your desires. God says, I want you to surrender. I got to surrender up some things. You know, I got to give up. I got to give up some dreams that I have for ministry. I got to sacrifice them on the cross. There's some things I say, if you don't do this, I, you know. And there's some things I just got to say, God, I'm going to serve you no matter how it goes. I'm going to follow you whether I get my way or not. I'm going to do your will. Can I tell you what happens then? When we learn to deny ourselves and die to that, such a peace and a joy comes. (laughs) Anything I try to hold on to, anything I try to hold on to that he's asking of me, it's always like that rotten manna. It always is. And you know what? 43 years, it's not changed. It'll be different this time. And no, it's never changed. It's always the same. Today, you may have your Garden of Gethsemane experience. And this is what we're going to do. I don't usually tell you to do this. If you would take an offering envelope, pull it open, or a piece of paper. And that thing that you want to surrender to God today, It's almost like that cross that you're going to pick up. That right that you're going to give up to. That thing that you are willing to die to. And I'll say this. A lot of us are thinking, yeah, I should eat better or quit smoking or all these things. I think there's going to be some really good things. Things that we say that are promises from God. Things that are really good things or positive things that we're going to have to lay down on the altar. And we're going to say, God, today I'm offering this. I'm sacrificing it. I'm not going to come back. I'm going to put it to death. And if you choose to resurrect it, it's nothing to do with me. Because I want to tell you something. Just like whenever God said to Abram, now I know that you really fear me. I believe that God requires that of us today too. He says, now I know that I'm really your Lord. See, because if he's not Lord of it all, he's not Lord at all. I'm sorry, but if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. He can't be Lord of our lives and have all of these other things that we put in his place. We're going to finish out. I want to say a prayer. And then in your time, 
what I'd like to encourage you to do, if there's something that you need to lay on the altar, that you write it out. And just in your time, you can walk up. And we built an altar today. We built an altar. It's no wood, but it's a place of sacrifice where we meet with God. And we lay down those things, those dreams, those desires. And we say, God, if you never give it to me, it don't matter because I'm going to serve you. Father God, I know we don't understand sometimes why you ask us to surrender certain things to you or why you ask us to put certain things to death. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak very specifically to people, that they would hear your voice. And whatever it is, you're asking them to surrender to you. I pray that they'd be able to do that. Once it's done, I pray that as they leave it here, they would never look back. And Lord, I pray that the glory would come. In the name of Jesus.